Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this, our 70th session exploring Professor Tolkien's Middle-earth, we crown the king, LSR. Hey, it's the return of the king, you guys. And then we begin to say a long series of farewells all the way from Minas Tirith to Rivendell. I said last week with with rank hubris, with just nothing but pride in my voice, that we were going to cover the end of chapter 5 of book 6 of The Lord of the Rings, and then covers chapters, uh, cover chapter 6 and 7. We are definitely not going to do that. We're definitely not going to make it all the way through chapter 6, in fact, but we will pick up next week with six, uh, the rest of 6 and all of 7 as we draw ever closer to the end of The Return of the King. I have also been reading today about uh, Professor Tolkien's epilogue, so at some point we're going to discuss the unfinished unpublished epilogue, which I believe is published in the uh, volume of the history of Middle-earth, Sauron Defeated, uh, compiled, of course, by Christopher Tolkien. So I'll, I'll see if we can't find a copy of that available online or the text of the epilogue as it stands available online. And uh, perhaps we'll discuss that before we wrap up with our discussion of the appendices too. More on that at the end of the show, though. Enough hesitance, enough uh, toing and froing. Let's get right into it. We'll pick up in Chapter 5, The Steward and the King, after our discussion of Faramir and Eowyn, which I enjoyed so much last week. But, you know, there are a couple of other things that we need to attend to as well, including, well, Eorath, the healer. So now there was a wide space between the wall, uh, before the walls of Minas Tirith, and it was hemmed in all sides by the knights and the soldiers of Gondor and of Rohan, and by the people of the city and all parts of the land. A hush fell upon all as out of the host stepped the Dúnedain in silver and grey, and before them came walking slow the Lord Aragorn. He was clad in black mail girt with silver, and he wore a long mantle of pure white clasped at the throat with a great jewel of green that shone from afar. But his head was bare, save for a star upon his forehead, bound by a, sing a slender fillet of silver. With him were Eomer of Rohan, and the Prince Emrahil, and Gandalf robed all in white, and four small figures that many men marveled to see. "'Nay, cousin, they are not boys,' said Eorth to her kinswoman from Imloth Meloe, who stood beside her. "'They are Perian, out of the far country of the halflings, where they are princes of great fame, it is said. I should know, for I, ha I had one to tend in the houses. They are small, but they are valiant. Why, cousin, one of them went with only his esquire into the black country and fought with the dark lord all by himself, and set fire to his tower, if you can believe it. At least that is the tale in the city.' That will be the one who walks with our Elfstone. They are dear friends, I hear. Now he is a marvel, the Lord Elfstone. Not too soft in his speech, mind you, but he has a golden heart, as the saying is, and he has healing hands. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, I said, and that was how all was discovered. And Mithrandir, he said to me, Eorth, men will long remember your words, and... But Eorth was not permitted to continue the instruction of her kinswoman from the country, for a single trumpet rang and a dead silence followed. Then forth from the gate went Faramir, with Hurin of the Keys, and no others, save that behind them walked four men in the high helms and armor of the citadel, and they bore a great casket of, of black lebethron bound with silver. Hobbit become legend, says Angela Larry Glowenson, saying Eorth, as annoying as ever. Yes, I don't love the inclusion here of Eorth, the healer woman. I don't love it because... Well, honestly, after our discussions of Eowyn and the response of the Lord of the Rings to its female characters, the perceived response of the Lord of the Rings to its female characters, it does feel a little like we are weighting one side of the scale with regard to the solemnity of women, or the absent solemnity of women, I suppose. But what I do love about Eorth's discussion here is that we are already seeing the legend take place, as Angela points out here in the chat. We're already seeing the story of Frodo and Sam take form. Why, cousin, one of them went... Well, first of all, of course, they are princes of great fame, it is said, right? <laughs> is it sad? Is it sad about the hobbits of the Shire that they are princes of great fame? I mean, I'm sure it's sad now. I don't know exactly where that story started, but still, here we are. Why, cousin, one of them went with only his esquire into the black country and fought with the Dark Lord all by himself and set fire to his tower, if you can believe it. At least that is the tale in the city. 
we've embellished Frodo's story somewhat in the two-week period that he has been uh, that he has been asleep under the healing ministrations of Aragorn, the someday very soon King Elessar, in fact. Um, we've embellished his story, we've elaborated a little bit, and we have adopted a suitably mythic tone and a suitably mythic register. The story of Frodo and Sam at the Crack of Doom, the story of Frodo and Sam's journey, really, from leaving Rivendell, certainly after being separated at Parthgallon, and doubly certainly after being separated from, Far uh, from Faramir, in Ithilien and going first to the crossroads and then up through the Morgul Vale, of course, up to Cerith Ungol, that story, for all that it has the tone and the, the register of great and epic myth, is not, in fact, mythic in its construction at all. Frodo is not, as we've said many times before, a conventional hero. And that is observable in one very powerful way, of course, because he doesn't win at the end. Frodo has endured the challenges arrayed before him, but he has not overcome them. Or, as I made very clear last week, and as I will continue to, this is a bell that I will continue to ring through the rest of our discussion of The Lord of the Rings, Frodo overcame every single challenge but one. It was the last test of his will. There, when the ring was at its most powerful, when the power of Sauron was at its most full, when this power had waxed into a malevolence that threatened to shroud Middle-earth in darkness forevermore, then Frodo's will failed him. But every challenge up until that point, he actually managed to clear with a certain amount of grace, a certain amount of dignity. Corporeal pointing out, I mean, Pippin and Merry are sort of hobbit princes. I mean, kind of, yes, I suppose, in the in the um, aristocratic sense, if not in the feudal sense, I suppose. You're absolutely right, Corporeal. That's, that's, a, that's a good pull. Uh, Mel's saying, pretty sure that's exactly how it went down at Mount Doom. Yeah, no, it's pretty close. Random comments asking, why do we think the name Hurin shows up on this slide? The name Hurin shows up on this slide because Professor Tolkien loved recycling names, in effect. Um, Hurin is going to uh, be a little significant later, in fact, in our reading tonight. But yeah, Hurin is... Um uh, actually, the name of Hurin, uh, Hurin Thalion, I suppose, is the greatest warrior of the First Age, right? The children of Hurin is the story of Hurin and his children, including Turin Turambar, one of the most mythic, one of the most legendary figures in all of Tolkien's Legendarium. And here the name has been recycled once more. This is at least an example of in-universe recycling. It is unlikely that Professor Tolkien was ditching his old concept for a character named Hurin and just slapping that name on this not to take anything away from Hurin, you understand, in this passage, but to slap the, that very important name on a fairly inconsequential bystander, it is just a name that has now entered into the language of Gondor. It has entered into the, the language of Numenor, I'm sure, coming from the First Age into the Second, and now into the Third, with the transition to Middle-earth and the founding of, of Gondor and of Arno Varig of Khan saying, Tolkien the Recycler, an ecological pioneer. Yes, exactly that. Eva saying it's a little like naming a son John. Yes, um... Yes, I mean, yes. If we think first and foremost of the most mythic Johns of history, then yes, absolutely. That is the, the, the point of comparison. But it is the naming of a son after a mythic figure of yore. Yeah, Hurin, uh, Hurin excuse me, is a very, very powerful figure here. So we have Aragorn coming forth, of course, with Eomer of Rohan, with Prince Imrahil, and with Gandalf, robed all in might, and four small figures that many men marveled to see. They go forth, and then they are met, of course. They are received. Forth from the gate went Faramir with Hurin of the Keys. Hurin, the Warden of the Keys, the Keeper of the Keys. We don't really know what that means, except that it is implied that he is in some way, you know, the gatekeeper, that this is an honorable position for, for Hurin of Gondor. But from the gate, Faramir and Hurin come forth. Save behind them walked four men in the high helms and armor of the citadel, and they bore a great casket of black Lebethron bound with silver. You'll remember that, uh, 
that uh, ancient and, and valuable wood, right? This is the casket that contains the crown. Yes, good. Good. Um, excellent. <laughs> Ryan saying Huron equals Hagrid. Uh, tempting. Tempting to make that comparison. Tempting. I'm not going to lie. Yes. Okay, good. So let's uh, move on to the next slide. I, I just wanted to talk a little about Eorath because, yes, the depiction is not perhaps as sophisticated as we might like. Though even then, I think the narrative pushes back against the idea that this is asserting anything positive about Eorath, right? Or that it is, that this is a thing to be genuinely celebrated, right? We get that slightly wry, but Eorath was not permitted to continue the instruction of her kinswoman from the country, right? That's a little wry about Eorath here, and it's certainly consistent with her characterization as we saw back in the Houses of Healing. But let's talk about something much more important. Let's talk about the names of Aragorn. Faramir met Aragorn in the midst of those there assembled, and he knelt and said, The last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender his office. And he held out a white rod, and Aragorn took the rod and gave it back, saying, That office is not ended, and it shall be thine and thy heirs as long as my line shall last. Do now thy office. Then Faramir stood up and spoke in a clear voice, Man of Gondor, hear now the steward of this realm. Behold, one has come to claim, claim the kinship again at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, the Elfstone, Elisar of the line of Valandil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? And all the host and all the people cried yea with one voice. As you know, of course, from the preceding 69 episodes of There and Back Again, I am a sucker for the recitation of names, right? You give me an introduction that is all of the names associated with an individual character. Of course, this is not all of Aragorn's names by any means, but it is the most significant ones. These are the names that will define his kingship going forward. Of course, the only one that might stand out there... Um, Elisar, of course, uh, whose hands bring healing, right, folding back in that idea of the mythic king, right, the hands of the king at the hands of a healer, right, we're, we're bringing back the idea that, that his kingship, that his authority, that his role, that his identity is beyond doubt at this point. The Elfstone, Elisar of the Lion of Valandil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor, right? We are, the Elisar, of course, is the Gondorian Sindarin word for Elfstone. He has been named by the tongue of his people, as it were, as Galadriel predicted, right, when she gave him the Elfstone in the first place. Um, this is the, the green gem and the silver setting that he wears, uh, that he wears in different places, I suppose, sometimes upon his chest, sometimes clasping his cloak. It's just a, a brooch, I suppose, in, in that regard. The name that we may not recognize here is Valandil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Valandil was the youngest of the four sons of Isildur. So young was he, in fact, that he had to stay at Rivendell during the Battle of the Last Alliance. He was still in Rivendell when Isildur uh, cleaved from Sauron's hand the ring, when Elendil fell, when Isildur took the ring, and then was still at Rivendell when Isildur fell too. This is the direct line, or at least this is one half of the direct line uh, that leads us to Aragorn in the first place. But we are codifying Aragorn's bloodline here, his right to the throne. It is incredibly powerful. We mustn't, though, also overlook this moment of fealty, I suppose, from Faramir. Faramir is in something of a delicate position here, and it would serve us well, I think, to pay close attention to it. Of course, last time we discussed Faramir's offer to Eowyn, right? I will wed the White Lady of Rohan, we will go into Athelion, and we will make again a garden, right? That is his plan. He is going to go into Athelion, that's going to be fantastic. As far as he knows... There isn't going to be a steward of Gondor. As far as he knows, that's actually it. He's finding himself out of work. This is, you know, a very good, like, uh, severance package, I suppose, but a severance package nonetheless. And here he is 
formally yielding up his authority even before the king is announced, even before. He is recognizing Aragorn's right to rule even before that right to rule is sanctioned by the people of Gondor and by the host of the West, the, the remnant of the host of the West that is here. The last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender his office and he held out a white rod, but Aragorn took the rod and gave it back. It's not that he refuses it. It's that he takes it because it is rightfully his, this rod, this this scepter of office, right? He takes it because it is legally rightfully his, and then he returns it. That office is not ended, he notes, right? The, the stewardship will continue in the service of the king. Now, the stewards, of course, don't necessarily only exist in the absence of a king. To be a steward is to be the guardian and the protector and the, the, the nurturer of this kingdom. And there is as much a role now for the steward as there ever was, despite the fact that the king, in fact, has returned. That office is not ended, and it shall be thine and thy heirs as long as my line shall last. Do now thy office, and you'll notice uh, Aragorn's rhetorical level modulating upward there, right? He's, he's back into these and thous again. He's back into in, into uh, formal declamatory language, I suppose. Uh, the office is not ended, and it shall be thine and thy heirs as long as my line shall last. Do now thy office. And we get the announcement of his names, and then the cry, and all the host and all the people cried yea with one voice. Let's get to the crowning itself. The return of the king. This is the slide. This is the moment. Then Aragorn took the crown and held it up and said, Et Eorello en Dorena Utulian, Sinomi Maravan en Ambar Meta. And those were the words that Elendil spoke when he came out of the sea on the wings of the wind. Out of the great sea to middle earth I am come, in this place will I abide and my heirs unto the ending of the world. Then, to the wonder of many, Aragorn did not put the crown upon his head, but gave it back to Faramir, and said, By the labor and valor of many have I come into my inheritance. In token of this, I would have the ring-bearer bring the crown to me, and let Mithrandir set it upon my head, if he will, for he has been the mover of all that has been accomplished, and this is his victory. Then Frodo came forward, and took the crown from Faramir, and bore it to Gandalf. And Aragorn knelt, and Gandalf set the white crown upon his head, and said, now come the days of the king, and may they be blessed while the thrones of the Valar endure. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time, tall as the sea kings of old. He stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood, and wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold the king! And in that moment... All the trumpets were blown, and the king Elessar went forth and came to the barrier, and Hurin of the keys thrust it back, and amid the music of harp and viol and of flute and the singing of clear voices, the king passed through the flower-laden streets and came to the citadel and entered in, and the banner of the tree and the stars was unfurled upon the topmost tower, and the reign of king Elessar began, of which many songs have told. In his time the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory. And it was filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble, and the folk of the mountain laboured in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good, and the houses were filled with men and women and the laughter of children, and no window was blind nor any courtyard empty, and after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. Here it is. Sea Star saying, now I'm picturing a little creature labeled Wisdom sitting on Aragorn's forehead. Just, just Wisdom! Like a little seal, perhaps? Uh, not a seal as in the animal, though, hey, why not a seal as in the animal? But like a little, a little emblem, right? <laughs> a little coat of arms there. Yes, yes. Aragorn putting aside his other roles here, notes Jackie. This is absolutely right. He is, he is becoming the greatest 
incarnation of himself, but there are things that he is separating. We talked about this just a few weeks ago, in fact, where I raised the rhetorical question, hey, does Aragorn ever miss being Aragorn? Like, uh, excuse me, does Aragorn ever miss being Strider? And the answer is possibly yes. There are moments in the text where we can point to, to particular lines from Aragorn and say, well, yeah, his role is different now. Certainly when he is daunted by the thought of being the king, though, never as daunted as he is, of course, in the Peter Jackson adaptation, which is a bold choice for this character, but not perhaps a necessary one. He is now become the fullest measure of Aragorn. He is uncloaked as he has never been uncloaked before. And he has been uncloaked before, right? The, the passing of the Argonauts, right? We get that moment when Frodo looks back and suddenly in the back of the boat, it's not Strider sitting there. It's not even the Aragorn that he knows, but no, it is a king of old sitting in the, in the stern of the boat. We've seen this kind of phenomenon happen before, but this is it rendered, this is that phenomenon rendered in its most full and lavish detail. So lavish, in fact, that we break the chronology of the story, which we have done before, right? This is not completely unprecedented in the page of the Lord of the Rings, but this is probably the most powerful and, and emphatic example of that, right? You can see how that modulates toward the end there. He comes into the citadel and enters in, and the banner of the tree and the stars was unfurled upon the topmost tower, and the reign of King Elisar began, of which many songs have told, many songs have told of this reign. Like, I am speaking to an audience that is already familiar with this king, even though the audience of this specific book are not familiar with this king as yet, or at least not familiar with the details of his reign. And then we get the explanation, then we get the shift into historical narrative. In his time, the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory. You remember Faramir talking back in Ithilien about what it is that he wants? Faramir gets it. Minas Tirith is restored. It is made once more proud again. The gates will still be of mithril and of steel, but it will be inclusive. We know that it is inclusive because the folk of the mountain labor in it and the folk of the wood rejoice to come there. All was healed and made good. The houses were filled with men and women in the laughter of children and no window was blind nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. We can note too, Allendale's words uh, right here at the beginning, right? He's echoing, we, we get a rare translation of the uh, of the Sindarin here. We get the, uh, the direct narrative translation of the Sindarin. In fact, Aragorn echoing the words that Elendil spoke when first he came to Middle-earth. And those were the words that Elendil spoke when he came up out of the sea on the wings of the wind. Out of the great sea to Middle-earth I am come, in this place will I abide, and my heirs unto the ending of the world. And then... Much to everyone's surprise, Aragorn does not, in fact, crown himself. He passes the crown back to Faramir and says, no, there's, there's symbolism here. There are important things to be recognized here. This is not a victory won on the strength of my own might, the strength of my own valor, and certainly not on the strength of my own bloodline. Many, many people assisted me. Many, many people helped me get here. By the labor and valor of many, I have come into my inheritance. In token of this, I would have the ring bearer bring the crown to me and let Mithrandir set it upon my head if he will, for he has been the mover of all that has been accomplished, and this is his victory. So we pass the crown to Frodo, who bears the crown of the king, which is a very significant thing, right? Frodo, once again, bearing a, a token of enormous power, less magical power in the instance of the crown of the king of Gondor and Arnor, the, the crown of the reunited kingdom, but still heavily symbolic, still still enormously, uh, enormously significant for Frodo to bear it. I mean, we can nitpick here, like, a little bit. Maybe Aragorn hasn't heard the whole story, right? In token of this, I would have the ring bearer bring the crown to me. I would have one of the two ring bearers now present bring the crown to me, right? We're not talking about Sam, of course, but Sam would 
I can't imagine what Sam would do. I can't imagine what Sam would do if, if tasked with carrying the, the crown of the returned king to Gandalf. That would be too much, too much, too much for poor Samwise Gamgee, I am sure. And Mithrandir takes it to Gandalf, sets it upon his head. Frodo came forward, took the crown from Faramir and bore it to Gandalf. And Aragorn knelt and Gandalf set the white crown upon his head and said, Now come the days of the king and may they be blessed while the thrones of the Valar endure. While the thrones of the Valar endure, is an interesting line too, in that it is oddly specific because this is only the third use of the word Valar in The Lord of the Rings. And there are a couple of instances tonight when we are going to call out specific verbiage in the prose of The Lord of the Rings, which is unusual, right? And this is one such example. We've used the word Valar three times, including this instance. Uh, the first comes from the fourth chapter of book four of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit, when Sam witnesses the battle with uh, between Faramir's man and the Eastling's uh, Faramir's man and, and the Oliphants, effectively, right? Uh, we get the quote, um, where is it here? Now I need to find it. Where, where, cried Damrod to his companion. May the Valar turn him aside. Mumek, Mumek. And then the second example of Valar comes in that famous quote in uh, chapter five of book five with the charge of Theoden King, right? Fay he seemed or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins and he was borne up on snowman like a god of old, even as Orome the great in the battle of the Valar when the world was young. Three times we've made reference to the Valar. Once, almost incidentally, right? Uh, Damrod to his companion shouting about the the the, uh, the Mumex, shouting about the, uh, the the coming foes there. That is an understated use of the word Valar. But of course, this is the association that we expect. This is the mythic association that we expect. So for all that we have been talking about the Valar and the Maya, for all that we have been talking about the cosmological underpinnings of Professor Tolkien's creation, it doesn't intrude into the text so terribly much, right? For all that we have talked about Manwe, for all that we have talked about Olmo, for all that we have talked about mysterious winds and, and you know, the, the, the fortuitous uh, happenstances of, uh, of eucatastrophe, the Valar have not intruded upon the text of the Lord of the Rings as much as we might expect. Though it is interesting that now come the days of the king, and may they be blessed while the thrones of the Valar endure. Well, the thrones of the Valar, as Gandalf is very well aware, will endure forever, right? There, there is, until literally the end times, the thrones of the Valar will endure. For as long as there is an Arda, for as long as there is a Middle-earth, the, uh, the thrones of the Valar will endure. And the king will be blessed in that time, right? Now come the days of the king, may they be blessed. So he's, he's not blessing the king himself, but the, the time of the king, may they be blessed while the thrones of the Valar endure. This is striking and, and powerful and a real statement about well, about what is coming next, the kind of thing that we'll observe in the final uh, the final stanza of this reading. Yeah, good. Um, let me see. Corporeal saying, is while the Valar's throne, uh, while the, th excuse me, Corporeal says, hmm, is while the Valar's throne lasts supposed to imply infinite time, like while the stars shine or to imply a specific end to all things must pass a la the elves? Uh, the latter, the latter, there is a uh, finite schema to the creation of Arda, but it is, it is forever. I mean, it is, it is, while there is a world, let this be the case. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's certainly my reading anyway. Yeah. Um, Liana saying, interesting thought, it's possible, but I don't know if Tolkien literally meant infinity. Yeah, I don't think that he was infinite within the frame of the world, right? That this shall pass too, that there will not be a world without this, but time is still is still finite time is still bounded right there is still a limit to the song sung by the Ainur back at the beginning of creation yeah good good all right let's uh 
Well, let's keep going. I suppose the king has returned, but we have to keep pushing on. This is just, it's so powerful. It's so wonderful. The beginning of the reign of, of King Alessar is just fantastic. Oh, I guess we should talk too about uh, Aragorn being uncloaked since I drew, uh, I made reference to that. I drew attention to that. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, right? So Gandalf cries out, now come the days of the king and may, he be, uh, may they be blessed while the thrones of the Valar endure, right? This this call for applause. This is what Gandalf is doing. Like this is the, the, the neon signs are blinking. Applause, applause, applause. But everyone is silent. Silent because Gandalf gets uh, because Aragorn, excuse me, gets back to his feet, and it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood, right? That opposition very important in the flower of manhood in the in the the fertile rush, right? There is still hope for new creation, but he also seems ancient. He is tying together the ancient days of Numenor and the coming of Elendil to Middle Earth and the present and into the future. He's combining all of these different elements. Wisdom sat upon his brow and strength and healing were in his hands and a light was about him. Another instance of a character apparently spontaneously glowing, right? We've had this before, of course. We've had it with Gandalf. We had it just last week with Faramir and Eowyn standing on the on the, the battlements of, of Minas Tirith, looking out toward the uh, well, I was going to say looking out toward the battle, but I guess looking out toward the site of the battle that was before coming down. That, that brilliant kiss that we discussed uh, last time. Yeah, let me see here. Um, are we having some technical issues? Are there some technical issues happening here? Everything seems okay. Oh, no, I guess we are having some technical issues. I do apologize. Um, if we can call out what those are in the chat room, I'll see if I can fix them. I might need to do a little bit of resetting. Okay, everything seems to be working out. Okay, good, good. Then I will continue onward. Here we go. Eight days later. So the glad days passed, and on the eighth day of May, the riders of Rohan made ready and rode off by the north way, and with them went the sons of Elrond. All the road was lined with people to do them honor and praise them, from the gate of the city to the walls of the Palinor. Then all others that dwelt afar went back to their homes rejoicing, but in the city there was labor of many willing hands to rebuild and renew and remove all the scars of war and the memory of the darkness. The hobbits still remained in Minas Tirith, with Legolas and Gimli, for Aragorn was loath for the fellowship to be dissolved. At last all such things must end, he said. But I would have you wait a little while longer, for the end of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come. A day draws near that I have looked for in all the years of my manhood, and when it comes I would have my friends beside me. But of that day he would say no more. In those days the companions of the ring dwelt together in the fair house with Gan in a fair house with Gandalf, and they went to and fro as they wished. And Gandalf's and Frodo said to Gandalf, excuse me, and Frodo said to Gandalf, Do you know what this day is that Aragorn speaks of? For we are happy here, and I don't wish to go, but the days are running away, and Bilbo is waiting, and the Shire is my home. As for Bilbo, said Gandalf, he is waiting for the same day, and he knows what keeps you. And as for the passing of the days, it is now only May, and high summer is not yet in, and though all things may seem changed, as if an age of the world has gone by, yet to the trees and the grass it is less than a year than you, that you set out. Pippin, said Frodo, didn't you say Gandalf was less close than of old? He was weary of his labors then, I think, now he is recovering. And Gandalf said, Many folk like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table, but those who have labored to prepare the feast like to keep their secret, for wonder makes the words of praise louder, and Aragorn himself waits for a sign. So something still is coming. We may be inclined towards speculation at this point, reading the book for the first time, but we don't know for sure. And it is clearly being obfuscated here by Aragorn, who doesn't speak of it, and Gandalf too, who clearly knows what it is. He recognizes that, that Aragorn is waiting for a sign of something, that something is hopefully 
coming and that Aragorn is, as it says, loath to dissolve the fellowship before then. He doesn't want to send his friends away. He wants his friends here for whatever big day is coming here in the, the first week of May, a week out from Aragorn's uh, coronation, which takes place, by the way, on the 1st of May in the year 3019 of the Third Age. So eight, uh, seven days, I suppose, on the eighth day of May, the writers of Rohan made ready. Everyone is leaving. Everyone is going off. The sons of Elrond are going up to Edoras too, though we'll see a little more of them later in tonight's reading. Oh, the road was lined with people to do them honor and praise them from the gate of the city to the walls of the Pelennor. But then it's back to work. In the city, there was the labor of many willing hands to rebuild and to renew and to remove all the scars of war and the memory of the darkness, right? We're already building toward that vision of Minas Tirith that was presented to us at the end of the last slide. Minas Tirith is going to become this great and glorious thing. It is going to become once more Minas Honor, right? It is going to become the true capital of Gondor, of Arnor, of the United Kingdom, of, of North and South. But we have to work on that. We have to build toward that. We have to heal the scars of war and the memory of the darkness. And Aragorn being a little coy, right? Of that day, he would say no more. In those days, the companions of the ring dwelt together in a fair house with Gandalf, and they went to and fro as they wished. So this is Frodo and Sam, Merry and Pippin, presumably Gimli and Legolas too, and Gandalf, all just like crashing. They have like the Minas Tirith Airbnb, and they're just like hanging out, smoking some pipe weed, probably drinking some good, good ale, just like having a hell of a time talking about their stories, talking about their adventures, just a little, a little uh, vacation after all that they have endured. But there is still this pressure on Frodo to return, right? What is it that is driving Frodo at this point? Do you know what this day is that Aragorn, Aragorn speaks of? For we are happy here and I don't wish to go, but the days are running away and Bilbo is waiting and the Shire is my home. Frodo is feeling that tug. He is happy here, like I take him at his word. He is happy here in Minas Tirith, but this is not his home. This is a temporary respite and he is perhaps eager to resume his journey. He is eager for the and back again part of his journey, the, the part that he never expected, the, the part that he... Uh... Oh, Jackie's saying, I think they're staying at Imrahil's place. Oh, Imrahil definitely keeps like a little pied-a-terre in Minas Tirith, right? When he's up from Dol Amroth for like the weekend, he comes up for, you know, to take in a show and, and to have dinner at one of Minas Tirith's fantastic restaurants, right? He comes up, he has a little swanky apartment. Why am I imagining this? Like it's something that would be built by or, or designed by Don Draper, right? I'm imagining this. Like, super sharp 60s modern, I guess I'm thinking one half Don Draper and one half James Bond. That is definitely, uh, that is definitely Prince Imrahil's pad in, uh, in this But yes, that, absolutely right, Jackie. That is now canon. That is where the, the, the company is staying at, at this point. And we get a little playfulness, too, from Frodo. And this is important because we're going to note Frodo's transition Frodo's arc, I suppose, from basically this point, from the moment that he awakens um, back uh, uh, at Aragorn's camp, right, from the moment that he awakens through to the very end of the book, we're going to be tracking a very different kind of arc for Frodo. And here we see a Frodo who is playful. By all accounts, Frodo is back. By all accounts, Frodo is boisterous and hobbitish, and he is his old self again, with one solitary exception that we've noted so far, which is that moment of hesitation about taking a sword, right? He just doesn't want to wear a sword, and he pushes back against it, opting instead for the barrow blade until Sam absolutely insists that he wear Sting. This, though, is classic Frodo. This is this is OG Frodo here. As, as Gandalf is pushing back, right? Um, it is now only May and High Summer is not yet in and all the things, uh, and though all things may seem changed as an age of the world has gone by, yet to the trees and the grass it is less than a year since you set out and there are readers of the book thinking, it's been less than a year? Are you sure? That's insane. 
Pippin, said Frodo, didn't you say that Gandalf was less clothes than of old? He was weary of his labors then, I think. Now he is recovering, right? A little pointed jab at Mithrandir here. It's, it's very great. It's very charming. It's very hobbitish. And Gandalf, of course, reducing this whole... Well, the, the the rhetorical level upon which we find ourselves, right? Reducing the grandeur of Minas Tirith to something that hobbits are going to be very familiar with. He is transitioning into a hobbity turn of phrase here. Many folk like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table, but those who have labored to prepare the feast like to keep their secret, for wonder makes the words of praise louder. And Aragorn himself waits for a sign. Aragorn, um... Well, you know what? Let's uh, let's push on. In fact, Let, let's let's move on to the next slide, and then we'll talk a little more about Aragorn. Yeah, uh, Gretchen saying, "Well, he seems so playful. Frodo sounds so tired, a little less bouncy than he was at the beginning of the story." Absolutely right. Yeah, we're we're going to track that all the way through this, and then, of course, what is that? The sixth of October, the day that they cross the ford of Bruinen, exactly a year after Frodo suffers his wound at Weathertop. Right, a year has gone by, and that is when he begins to feel the sting of the Morgul blade. We're not quite there yet, but yes, it's uh, Leanna saying, "I'm still reading the." fellowship of the ring to my wife and we haven't even left the shire yet his tone is so different from this the tone of frodo or the tone of the entire book because in both instances i'm inclined to say yes yes it's very very different it super is uh, t- uh the tone of frodo but yes both uh, confirms liana yeah no it, it is frodo has been well frodo has been changed more completely than anyone else it is a testament to the strength of samwise Gamgee that he has barely been changed at all it is a testament to the strength of Merry and Pippin that they have been changed in the ways that they have been changed. It is a sadness. It is a grief, I suppose, that Frodo has been altered to this degree. But yeah, he is he is covering it up still. He is is still trying to well, trying to be and is sincerely being somewhat hobbitish. We're gonna see again, hopefully, that transition when we get to uh, Rivendell at the end of tonight's reading. If we get to Rivendell at the end of tonight's reading. Ever the optimist, that's me. So Gandalf takes Aragorn out of the citadel. He takes him out of Minas Tirith. He takes him up onto Midoluin. In fact, up onto the uh, the the mountain behind Minas Tirith. And they go looking. They go walking. They just converse for a while. And there they find something very, very important. There they find, well, something very surprising. And Gandalf said, This is your realm, and the heart of the greater realm that shall be. The third age of the world is ended, and the new age is begun. But it is your task to order its beginning and to preserve what may be preserved. For though much has been saved, much must now pass away. And the power of the three rings also is ended. And all the lands that you see and those that lie round them shall be the dwellings of men. For the time comes of the dominion of men and the elder kindred shall fade or depart. I know it well, dear friend, said Aragorn, but I would still have your counsel. Not for long now, said Gandalf. The third age was my age. I was the enemy of Sauron, and my work is finished. I shall go soon. The burden must now lie upon you and your kindred. But I shall die, said Aragorn, for I am a mortal man, and though being what I am and of the race of West unmingled, I shall have life far longer than other men, yet it is but of a little while. And when those who are now in the wombs of women are born and have grown old, I too shall grow old. And who then shall govern Gondor? And who shall look to the city? And excuse me. And those who look to the city as to their queen, if my desire be not granted, the tree in the court of the fountain is still withered and barren. What shall I see of a sign that it will ever be otherwise? Turn your face from the green world, and look where all seems barren and cold," says Gandalf. Then Aragorn turned. And there was a stony slope behind him running down from the skirts of the snow, and as he looked he was aware that alone there in the waste a growing thing stood. And he climbed to it, and saw that out of the very edge of the snow there sprang a sapling tree no more than three foot high. 
Already it had put forth young leaves long and shapely, dark above and silver beneath, and upon its slender crown it bore one small cluster of flowers, whose white petals shone like the sunlit snow. Then Aragorn cried, Yea! Utivien, yes, excuse me, yeah, that, that's a that's a tough Cinderin word there. Then Aragorn cried, Yay, Utivien, yes, I have found it. Lo, here is a scion of the eldest of trees, but how comes it here? For it is not itself yet seven years old. And Gandalf coming looked at it and said, Verily, this is a sapling of the line of Nimloth the Fair, and that was a seedling of Galathilion, and that a fruit of Terpirion of many names, eldest of trees. Who shall say how it comes here in this appointed hour? But this is an ancient hollow, and ere the kings failed or the tree withered in the court, a fruit must have been set here. For it is said that though the fruit of the tree comes sometimes to ripeness, excuse me, for the fruit of the tree comes seldom to ripeness, yet the life within may lie sleeping through many long years, and none can foretell the time in which it will awake. Remember this. For if ever a fruit ripens, it should be planted, lest the line die out in the world. Here it has lain, hidden on the mountain, even as the race of Elendil lay hidden in the wastes of the north. Yet the line of Nimloth is far older than your line, King Elisar. So, Aragorn wrestling with the future, Aragorn wrestling with his own mortality, wrestling with the thing which he is striving to build, and wrestling, of course, ultimately with the symbol the tree, the dead tree in the courtyard of the citadel that has endured now for a thousand years, the dead tree that has stood for a thousand years, but this echo of Galathinian and, and of Telperion beyond, of Nimloth the Fair, the tree is of Gondor. The tree is the thing which connects Gondor, besides the blood of the people, the tree is the thing which connects Gondor back to Numenor and to closer kinship with the elves. And we'll be thinking about kinship with the elves. It's no coincidence here that Gandalf chooses the, world, the words elder kindred, right? For the time comes of the dominion of man and the elder kindred shall fade or depart. And now's as good a time as any to talk about the Fourth Age. I mentioned in last week's reading, hey, this is the first session of the Fourth Age. And a couple of people emailed me and said, you know, this isn't the first uh, the first session of the Fourth Age, right? And I'm like, yeah, okay. Technically, the Fourth Age doesn't start for another two years, in fact. The Fourth Age begins with the departure from Middle-earth of the three elven rings of power. More on that later in this reading. But as Gandalf here says, the Third Age of the world is ended and the New Age is begun. We're a little soft on what exactly the, the, uh, the Fourth Age is and where exactly we draw that line. Historians in the future will mark the passing of the Three Rings from Middle-earth, but historians in the present, the historians here in, uh, in where are we, the beginning of June, 2000, uh, June 3019, I suppose, at this point? Historians right now are like, oh no, this is definitely the fourth age, right? Uh, look around you, dominion of man, like right here, this is it. The, uh, the elder kindred shall fade or depart. This is where we are right now. So the line is a little soft, but for my money, I'm inclined to view the beginning of the fourth age, the end of the third age as the fall of Sauron. That, that seems to be appropriate, particularly in Gondor, as the Gondorians now use that to mark the beginning of their new year, right? That is going to be the uh, the, the constant beginning of, of a new cycle for Gondor, is the memory of the fall of, uh, the fall of, uh, of Sauron there. So, Aragorn says, I know it well, dear friend, but I would still have your counsel. And Gandalf is very honest. Not for long now. The third age was my age. I was the enemy of Sauron and my work is finished. I shall go soon. The burden must lie upon you and your kindred. And Aragorn is concerned. For I am a mortal man, and though being what I am and of the race of the West unmingled, I shall have a life far longer than other men, yet it is but a little while, right? He's recognizing, now. I'm going to live like a long time by the standards of everyone who's not Numenorean, right? The blood of the West unmingled, by the way, recognizes the fact that, uh, I wrote this down because this is, um, 
This is an odd bit of, I guess I didn't write this down. I meant to write this down. Maybe uh, maybe some of you can remember the chat. I don't remember. I, I'm terrible with like genealogies, like a terrible hobbit I would make because uh, I, I just can't keep family trees straight for the life of me. But there is a point back in Aragorn's past when he uh, when he unifies the, the two branches of the Numenorean line here in Middle-earth, right? Where there is uh, the, the husband of, um, of Arnor in the north, the descendants of Arnor, and the wife of Gondor in the south. I'm afraid that those names have escaped me, Perhaps I wrote it down further in my notes and I'll I'll come across it in like 25 minutes and say, oh, those are their names. So he is um, he is of the race of the West unmingled. He'll have a longer life. But um, when those who are now in the wombs of women are born and have grown old, I too shall grow old. And who then shall govern Gondor and those who look to the city as to the queen of my desire be not granted? Aragorn will die at the age of 210 in the year 120 of the fourth age. So basically 120 years from now, depending on like 122 years from now, if you're being very, very technical about it, but roughly 120 years from now at the age of 210. That is going to be the end of Aragorn's life. Luckily, it will not be the end of Minas Arnor. It will not be the end of the reunited kingdom of North and South. It will be the passing of the torch on to a new generation. Aragorn is not going to, Aragorn's line is not going to, to die out here in the way that we fear the line of the white tree is going to die out. Now let's recap the white tree a little bit. Um, so the first white tree of Gondor comes from, so, so all the way back on Numenor during the second age, right? As, as uh, our Farazon is launching his campaign against Valinor, everything's going terrible. Like Sauron is, is large and in charge on the island of Numenor in his fair seeming guise. Like the night before Numenor is sunk, Isildur steals the, uh, the, the, the fruit of the tree Nimloth the Fair, the white tree of, of Numenor, and he carries it to Middle-earth, right? In the year two of uh, the Third Age, so, so right after the founding of Gondor, Isildur plants that tree in Minas Anor. That tree is, of course, destroyed when, uh, when Sauron's forces take Minas Anor. Then he plants another sapling, uh, another, uh, uh, another version of this tree, I suppose, another instantiation of the, another instance of this tree. He plants another one in uh, Minas Tirith, which lasts all the way through until... Um, what is that? Uh, 1636, when the Great Plague hits Gondor and, and kills the tree. A new one is planted in 1640 of the Third Age, which dies in 2872 with the death of the ruling steward Belakthor II. And that's it. 2872 to 3019, that tree has been dead. It has been, it has just stood there. That, that's the, the dead tree at the, uh, at the courtyard of uh, the citadel there. And now we found another one. And Gandalf's very clear here. Well, this is a special place. The fruit was taken. The fruit can wait. Here it was taken away, sequestered away in a high place where the snows are. It was sequestered away and now it has come to life. The connection here of the white tree and Aragorn is symbolic and beautiful, but it is more than that. It is more than just a symbol of Aragorn. It is something else. And that is because the white tree of Numenor was given to Numenor. Nimloth the Fair was given to Numenor by the elves as a token of, well, not just alliance, but of kinship, right? The elves recognize that is, that is one of the aspects of the white tree is that it is a symbol of connection and of alliance and of kinship and of unification almost between men and elves. This is why it is so important. This is why he cries out in this this uh, this joyous manner, "Yea, Utivienyes," uh, which is Gondorian. Uh, actually, not Gondorian. Cinderin, just Cinderin. For I have found it. Right. That is that is his. Ah, here it is. I found it. I totally found this sapling on my own with no help whatsoever. This is the uh, good good. 
Um, yeah, Liana's saying, I want to uh, I want to tattoo it uh, as actual silver in the ink so it shines whenever light hits it, right? We're talking about the white tree. Yeah, I'm fully planning on getting the white tree tattooed on my body, says Liana. Yeah, me too. Like The white tree is, uh, in fact, as I've shown before here, uh, I received this. Let me cancel the slide just so I can show you this because it is one of my favorite possessions in the entire world. Here's my little bookmark that was given to me from, uh, from Joseph Shannon uh, and his wife Trudy all the way in uh, New Zealand. It is just gorgeous. Yeah, I would... I would definitely have that. Like that's that's one of those things. I'd have that before I had like I don't know what from from Harry Potter, like a like a Deathly Hallows symbol or something. Yeah, I'll definitely go with the White Tree of Numenor. Okay, let's uh, keep pushing on here. So this is the symbol that Aragorn has been waiting for. Unbeknownst to us, of course, this is the symbol that Aragorn has been waiting for. He has been waiting for a sign that something is going to happen or that something is not going to happen. But hey, what could this sign? This restoration of the White Tree in the courtyard of the Citadel of Minas Tirith. This symbol of unification and of kinship between men and elves, what could this possibly, possibly represent? Upon the very eve of midsummer, when the sky was blue as sapphire and white stars opened in the east, but the west was still golden, and the air was cool and fragrant, the riders came down the north way to the gates of Minas Tirith. First rode Elrahir and Eladon with a banner of silver, and then came Glorfindel, and Aristor, and all the household of Rivendell, and after that came the Lady Galadriel and Celeborn, Lord of Lothlorien, riding upon white steeds and with the many fair folk of their land, grey-cloaked with white gems in their hair, and last came Master Elrond, mighty among elves and men, bearing the scepter of Anuminus, and beside him upon a grey palfrey rode Arwen, his daughter, even star of her people." And Frodo, when he saw her come glimmer, glimmering in the evening, with stars on her brow and a sweet fragrance about her, was moved with great wonder, and he said to Gandalf, At last I understand why we have waited. This is the ending. Not now, not day only shall be beloved, but night too shall be beautiful and blessed, under, and all its fear pass away. Then the king welcomed his guests, and they alighted, and Elrond surrendered the scepter and laid the hand of his daughter in the hand of the king. And together they went up into the high city, and all the stars flowered in the sky. And Aragorn the king Elisar wedded Arwen and Domiel in the city of kings upon the day of midsummer, and the tale of their long waiting and labours was come to fulfilment. This is what Aragorn has been waiting for. He has been waiting for the coming of Arwen to Minas Tirith. He's not sure, like he doesn't know if this is going to happen. Is he going to be able to wed his love, like this woman that he has loved for all his long life? Or is this just not, in fact, going to work out? But then the elves come. Upon the very eve of midsummer, when the sky was blue as sapphire and white stars opened in the east, but the west was still golden, like this is the moment. Starlight and sunlight, like this is perfect. This is the melding of the age of man and the age of elves, right? The elves bring with them the starlight. The elves love the starlight because for so long, of course, starlight was the light of the elves. That was all the light that there was in the world. The elves dwelt beneath the stars long before there was a sun and moon to, to illuminate the heavens. So they dwell there under the starlight, and they come, and of course, over here in Eladon, right, the, the the sons of Elrond there with the banner of silver, Glorfindel and Arrestor and all the household of Rivendell, Galadriel and Celeborn, Lord of Lothlorien. I like that Celeborn gets his little Lord of Lothlorien, in case you'd forgotten. Like, you're not going to forget who Galadriel is, but you may have forgotten who Celeborn was, right? So Galadriel is there, and also Celeborn, 
the the Lord of, of Lothlorien, remember? Yeah, so he was there too. It's, it's great. It's uh, Riding upon white steeds and with the many fair folk of their land, gray cloaked with white gems in their hair, and last master Elrond, mighty among elves and men, bearing the scepter of Anuminus. And beside him upon a gray palfrey rode, rode Arwen, his daughter, even star of her people. That is, of course, uh, Undomiel is, is even star, right? She is the twilight of her people. She is uh, the last elf to be born into Middle-earth. She is the, the most beautiful since uh, Luthien Tenuviel herself, right? She is, and of course, the, the, the what, great, great, great grandchild, I think great in three orders, grandchild of, uh, of Baron and Luthien there too. Um, oh, Anuminus there, the scepter of Anuminus is the uh, scepter of the capital city of the kings of Arnor, right? So when Arnor was a real kingdom uh, up in the north <laughs> before, it was, uh, before it was shattered, before it fell, um, Anuminus was, uh, was the capital city. So the scepter of Anuminus is this, the, the token of the rule of the north as well as the rule of the south. Aragorn inheriting from both sides of the line of Numenor here in Middle-earth is the inheritor of both thrones and is going to reunite them for the first time into this combined kingdom. Anuminus, of course, we can actually do some uh, some pretty sophisticated etymology here just from reading the book, right? We, we've learned enough Sindarin now just from reading the book that we can actually make a pretty educated guess because we've seen Anun before, of course, right? Like Hanneth Anun, we, we've seen uh, we've seen uh, this this construction before. So Anun meaning uh, the sunset, meaning representatively, symbolically, the West, and of course Minas. Yeah, we've heard that word quite a lot. Of course, uh, Anuminus is is the Tower of the West, which up there in the northwest of Middle Earth makes a lot of sense. All of the tokens of the uh, city of Arnor, all of the tokens of the royal line of Numenor, in fact, um, of, of Arnor and Gondor, both are held for safekeeping in Rivendell after the uh, line of kings die out, including like the shards of Narsil and so on and so forth. And this is our conclusion. This is what everyone has been waiting for, as Frodo observes. At last I understand why we have waited. Oh, one incidental little beat there. Uh, and Frodo, when he saw her come glimmering in the evening with stars on her brow and a sweet fragrance about her, was moved with great wonder. He was moved with great wonder and thought, hmm, smells like elves. Just to echo his Uncle Bilbo there. At last I understand why we have waited. This is the ending. Now not only... Uh, excuse me, I'm tripping over the, the syntax of this gorgeous sentence. Now not day only shall be beloved, but night too shall be beautiful and blessed and all its fear pass away. This is restoration. This is unity. This is the holistic healing of Middle-earth. It's now... Aragorn is here and the sun is awesome and the, the high summer here in Minas Tirith, in Minas Anor, in Gondor is fantastic. This is beautiful to behold. But the shadow tainted the darkness. The shadow tainted darkness itself. Not just the darkness of night, but all darkness. The shadow, the influence of Sauron took its root in dark places. But now we've cast out that evil so completely that we need not be afraid of the darkness. Now, like the elves, we can also be joyous at night. We can be joyous under the starlit sky. We are healing and uniting both riven and divided halves of the world of experience, the, the world of mortal experience here in Middle-earth. They are restored once more. Then the king welcomed his guests and they alighted. Elrond surrendered the scepter, passing the scepter up to Aragorn as a symbol of his kingship, of course, laid the hand of his daughter in the hand of the king and together they went up into the high city and all the stars flowered in the sky. And then we modulate still higher, right? And Aragorn the king, Elisar, wed wedded Arwen and Dumiel in the city of the kings upon the day of midsummer and the tale of their long waiting and labors was come to fulfillment. And that is the end of the return of the king, in effect, right? The, the king is now as completely returned as the king can possibly be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, on Johnson's asking here, how about elf-scented air freshener? <laughs> 
Varig of Khan saying, uh, my, my fabric softeners are, el are elven scent. I almost misread that as, as elvenescent, which I also quite like, right? Like, what do you, uh, uh, if there is like a, a sparkling coruscation around elves or if elven, elven wine is just, you know, carbonated, if, if it's carbonated because you carbonate wine, that's definitely what you do, right? Just plug that bottle of wine into the soda stream and just go nuts before you drink it. If elven wine is fizzy, then it is elvenescent. Is that the joke that I took five minutes of your time to get to? You know, it's been a long day and it's very hot here in Oklahoma City, as I may have mentioned previously. So with all of that done, let's get into our next chapter, chapter six. I was, remember, originally going to cover two more chapters after this. Hubristic thought. When the days of rejoicing were over at last, the companions thought of returning to their own homes. And Frodo went to the king as he was sitting with the Queen Arwen by the fountain, and she sang a song of Valinor while the tree grew and blossomed. They welcomed Frodo and rose to greet him, and Aragorn said, I know what you have come to say, Frodo. You wish to return to your own home. Well, dearest friend, the tree grows best in the land of its sires, but for you in all the lands of the West there will ever be a welcome. And though your people have had little fame in the legends of the great, they will now have more renown than many wide realms that are no more. It is true I wish to go back to the Shire, said Frodo, but first I must go to Rivendell, for if there could be anything wanting in a time so blessed, I miss Bilbo, and I was grieved when among all the household of Elrond I saw he was not come. Do you wonder at that, Ringbearer? said Arwen, for you know the power of that thing which is now destroyed, and all that was done by that power is now passing away. But your kinsman possessed this thing longer than you. He is ancient in years now, according to his kind, and he awaits you, for he will not again make any long journey save one. Then I beg leave to depart soon, said Frodo. In seven days we will go, said Aragorn, for we shall ride with you on the road even as far as the country of Rohan. In three days now Aomer will return hither to bear Theoden back to rest in the mark, and we shall ride with him to honor the fallen. But now, before you go, I will confirm the words that Faramir spoke to you, and you are made free forever in the realm of Gondor and all your companions likewise. And if there were any gifts that I could give you to match your deeds, you would have them. But whatever you desire, you shall take with you, and you shall ride in honor and arrayed as princes of the land. But the Queen Arwen said, A gift I will give you, for I am the daughter of Elrond. I shall not go with him now when he departs to the havens, for mine is the choice of Luthien. And as, excuse me, and as she so have I chosen, both the sweet and the bitter. But in my stead you shall go, Ringbearer, when the time comes, if you then desire it. If your hurts grieve you still, and if the memory of your burden is heavy, then you may pass into the west, until all your wounds and weariness are healed. But wear this now in memory of Elfstone and Evenstar, with whom your life has been woven. And she took a white gem like a star that lay upon her breast, hanging upon a silver chain, and she set the chain around Frodo's neck. When the memory of the fear and the darkness troubles you, she said, this will bring you aid. Jackie saying in the chat here, Arwen gets it, you guys. Arwen gets it 100%. Arwen is ahead of the game here, ahead of Aragorn, ahead even of Frodo, ahead even of the narrative. We don't yet have a sense that Frodo's healing will be incomplete. This is in many ways the first confirmation that Frodo's healing is going to be incomplete, that he is always going to bear this wound, that he is always going to bear this weight. And even as Aragorn is talking in the, the, the highest order there, right? Okay, first we must note Aragorn formalizing Faramir's words to Frodo and to Sam back in Ithilien, right? When, when Faramir gives them the, the freedom of Gondor for a year and a day, knowing that if he goes back and tells Denethor that he has done this, not only has he betrayed his task as as, uh, as uh, captain of, of the guard here, but that he has absolutely infuriated his father, right? That would have gone very badly for Faramir had Denethor not had even worse things to worry about at the time. 
but it was still formally done. It was still properly done and legally done. And now Aragorn, King Elisar, grants Frodo the freedom of, of Gondor in perpetuity. That is, that is it. It is done now, right? But now before you go, I will confirm the words that Faramir spoke to you, and you are made free forever in the realm of Gondor and all your companions likewise. And if there were any gifts that I could give you to, uh, that I could give to match with your deeds, you should have them. But whatever you desire, you shall take with you, and you shall ride in honor and arrayed as princes of the land like he's... You're amazing, Frodo, right? My dearest friend, my dearest friend. This is so intimate and also so grand, and Aragorn is such a great king. But that's not where Frodo is. And crucially, that's not where Arwen is. And this is very soft, and it is very subtle. It absolutely befits the even star of her people, right? Because there is here the quiet tragedy of Elvendom in Middle-earth. A gift I will give you, for I am the daughter of Elrond. I shall not go with him now when he departs to the havens, for mine is the choice of Luthien. All elves, as we were discussing with, with Legolas so recently, all elves are going to depart, right? As Gandalf just said, this is the dominion of man. It's the age of man. The, the elder kin, they're done. They're, they're gone. They're leaving Middle-earth. It might take a while. Like, it might take a few hundred years for the last elves to find their way west, but they will. This is the passing of the elves into the west now. It is going to stick. That, that is going to be it for Elvendom in Middle-earth. But not Arwen. She is not going to leave Aragorn. She is making the choice of Luthien, of her, uh, of her great great grandmother, great great grandmother. I'm not thinking two greats. I'm thinking two greats on that. Great great grandmother. Um, Arwen is making the choice to become mortal. Right. That that's what she means when she says uh, both the sweet and the bitter. She is becoming mortal now. She is going to die as mortal men die in the realm of Middle Earth. She is not going to depart into the West. But hey, there's a spot on the ship with her name on it, and she is passing that on to Frodo. But in my stead, you shall go, Ringbearer, when the time comes. If you then desire it, if your hurts grieve you still and the memory of your burden is heavy, then you may pass into the West until all your wounds and weariness are healed. But wear this now in memory of Elfstone and Evenstar with whom your life has been woven, right? So she gives him the, uh, she gives him the white gem on the silver chain that she hangs around his neck, right? In memory of another chain that he wore around his neck for a very long time that was a great weight and a great burden. This is going to be a token of healing. It is going to be a token of restoration. When the memory of the fear and the darkness troubles you, this will bring you aid, she says. But much more importantly, Frodo, you can go into the West. If at some point your wound, your suffering, your burden becomes too much, you can go into the West. And even now she's framing this as a possibility, right? If this should happen, if you so desire it, if you feel this way. But she's laying out Frodo's path in a way that not even Frodo can recognize right now. Since we're doing this, since we're moving into the end of the book, I guess we're just we're, we're catching up with our uh, with our characters here. So Aragorn, as I said, dies in the year 120 of the Fourth Age. After he dies, Arwen departs from Minas Tirith and goes to Lothlorien, which is at that time abandoned. It is uh, abandoned. It is deserted. It is wild once more. So she goes to Lothlorien and she uh, stays there a while until in the following year, year 121 of the Fourth Age, she dies and is buried at uh, Karen Amroth, the, the hill there in Lothlorien. So this is foreshadowing all that we're going to get from... Um, Oh, what a great acknowledgement, Jackie saying. Sounds so much like her grandmother Galadriel here. Yes, she absolutely is. And Shane observing, Arwen becoming queen does a very royal thing, giving a gift like a king or queen would. Yeah, it's so powerful. It's it, And it's so subtle, right? On Johns is saying here, I have no memory of Arwen telling Frodo this. This is such a cool moment. No, it's because it's so understated. Like, if you are not following along here, like, if you're not reading very carefully, if you are one of those readers that gets to, yay, the return of the king, flip, 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 flip. Ooh, the Shire, flip, flip, flip.
flip, 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 and that's the end of the book, right? If you are one of those readers, and there are lots and lots and lots of those readers out there, if you are not inclined to carefully read this long denouement, then there's a lot that you are going to miss. God, there's infeasible amounts of stuff that you're going to miss, which is why tonight's session is, is so jam-packed and why we have simply so many slides to uh, cover. We'll note here too. So, so we're going to uh, we're going to return home. We get the uh, the beat here from Arwen too about Bilbo aging. That he is not going to make another long journey, save one. Again, she knows what that journey is, but we're not there yet. Then I beg leave to depart soon, said Frodo. In seven days we will go, said Aragorn, for we will ride, uh, for we shall ride with you far on the road, even as far as the country of Rohan. In three days now, Eomer will return hither to bear Theoden back to rest in the Mark, and we shall ride with him to honor the fallen. So we are going to go. Everyone is going to travel together. We'll be together just a little longer. Another week, and we'll move on. Let's, um, what is the next? Okay, so we, uh, yeah, <laughs> this is where I've, believe it or not, actually cut some slides that I was going to talk about. Um, so we depart from Minas Tirith with the funeral escort of Theoden King on July the 22nd. All of this time has passed, right? We, we picked up in uh, April, and now we are in the last week of July, in effect, right? So we depart from Minas Tirith uh, with the funeral escort of Theoden on July the 22nd. And before we move into the next slide, we need to go back a ways first. We need to look at... Three excerpts previously in The Lord of the Rings, three scenes with uh, Eomir and Gimli talking about Galadriel, of course. The first comes from, uh, the first two, in fact, come from uh, The Writers of Rohan, the third chapter in book three. I'm not going to read these. these. These will be either present on the screen for you right now or present in the packet. But you'll remember the sparring that we've had between um, between Gimli and uh, and Eomir as we've, been, as we've moved through this book, right? Um, uh, then Eomer, son of Eomer, third marshal of Rivermark, let Gimli the dwarf glowing son warn you against such foolish words. You speak evil of that which is fair beyond the reach of your thought, and only little wit can excuse you. And then later in that same scene, of course, as they take their 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 parting, Eomer cries out, Farewell, and may you find what you seek. Return with what speed you may, and let our swords hereafter shine together. I will come, said Aragorn, and I will come too, said Gimli. The matter of the Lady Galadriel still lies between us. I have yet to teach you gentle speech. And then we cut all the way ahead, like three chapters later, in the King of the Golden Hall, we're still getting this this uh, this quarrel between the two of them. Um, uh, as Eomer calls out, uh, "Hail, Gimli, glowing son!" He cried, "I have not I have not had time to learn gentle speech under your rod as you promised. But shall we not put aside our quarrel? At least I will speak no evil against the Lady of the Wood." And Gimli replies, "I will forget my wrath for a while, Eomer, son of Eomund. But if you ever chance to see the Lady Galadriel with your eyes, then you shall acknowledge her the fairest of ladies, or our friendship shall end." All of this is foreshadowing, of course of this, I love throughout this chapter, we get these really short scenes where we're just taking care of business and they're all just gorgeous. This is it. In three days, as the king had said, Eomer of Rohan came riding to the city and with him came an Ered of the fairest knights of the mark. He was welcomed. And when they sat all at a table in, Me uh, excuse me, when they sat all at table in Merathrond, the great hall of feasts, he beheld the beauty of the ladies that he saw and was filled with great wonder. And before he went to his rest, he sent for Gimli the dwarf and he said to him, Gimli, glow and son, have you your axe ready? Nay, lord, said Gimli, but I can speedily fetch it if there be need. You shall judge, said Amor, for there are certain rash words concerning the lady in the golden wood that lies still between us. And now I have seen her with my eyes. Well, lord, said Gimli, and what say you now? Alas, said Amor, I will not say that she is the fairest lady that lives. Then I must go for my axe, said Gimli. But first I will plead this excuse, said Amor. Had I seen her in other company, I would have said all that you could wish. But now I will put Queen Arwen Evenstar first, and I am ready to I am ready to do battle on my part with any who deny me. Shall I call for my sword? Then Gimli bowed low. 
You're excused for my part, Lord, he said. You have chosen the evening, but my love is given to the morning, and my heart forebodes that soon it will pass away forever. <laughs> See, starts saying, I roll at people discussing who's more beautiful as if beauty was at all objective. I bet many people would agree with me that Gollum is beautiful, for example. I'm sure, I'm sure Gollum is just, just lovely, just lovely. And Jackie laughing. Sorry, Gimli, Aomer marries Emeril's daughter, who probably looks more like Arwen than Galadriel. Uh, yeah, probably much more. What I love about this turn is the way that, and, and this is common in this part of the book, we will get a scene of, of banter, right? We will just get our characters talking to each other, and then we will cap it with a turn toward the mythic, a turn toward the the profound, I suppose, as we get here, right? We're just we're just bantering. We've, we've had this long-running subplot about Aomer and Gimli and, and Gimli's loyalty to and love for Galadriel. And I want to be super clear here, like, this is not a romantic love. This is not the love of a man for a woman. This is a love, uh, the love of a subject for a queen, right? Gimli has beheld Galadriel in her, in her fullest measure, and her beauty is not a question of, like, attractiveness. Hey, isn't Galadriel, like, on hotornot.com, you get the two pictures, one of Galadriel and one of Arwen, and like, which one do you pick? That is not the challenge that is before us here. When he's talking about her beauty, he's not just meaning her physical beauty, he's talking about all that is Galadriel, right? He's talking about his queen, and Aomer also, like, almost literally talking about his queen, as we said last time. Rohan, of course, not a subordinate kingdom of, of Gondor, not a, a principality of Gondor in the way that Athelion is going to be something of a principality of Gondor, or in the way that Dol Amroth is something of a principality of Gondor, right? Rohan is separate. Rohan is a kingdom unto itself, but Arwen is kind of still Aomer's queen here at this point. But much more importantly, we get this pivot at the end. Then Gimli Badlow, nay, you're excused for my part, Lord, he said, you have chosen the evening, but my love is given to the morning, and my heart forebodes that soon it will pass away forever. That Galadriel is the Lady of Light, right? That's one of her many, many names. And Arwen, as we've discussed, is the Evenstar. She is the twilight of her people. There are beginnings and there are endings. There is birth, if you like, and there is death. But also, I suppose, right, as, as Jackie just pointed out, of course, um, uh, Galadriel is the mother of Calabrian, who is the mother of Arwen. So Galadriel is, we don't measure this stuff quite the same way in, in elven circumstances, of course, because they just live for so long. But Galadriel is Arwen's grandmother. So she is, in a sense, the morning. By implication, therefore, Calabrian would be like the noon, right? <laughs> Calabrian is the noon sun. And then uh, Arwen will be the twilight. There's a balance there that is very pleasing there. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's keep on going here. We'll get to... Uh, get to Theoden's son. This is just, this is just lovely. So we ride back um, all the way to, uh, to Edoras, and this is where we end up. Then the riders of the king's house upon white horses rode round about the barrow and sang together a song of Theoden Thangle's son that Gleowine his minstrel made, and he made no other song after. The slow voices of the riders stirred the hearts, even of those who did not know the speech of that people. But the words of the song brought a light to the eyes of the folk of the mark as they heard again afar the thunder of the hooves of the north and the voice of Aeorl crying, uh, crying above the battle upon the field of Celebrant and the tale of the kings rolled on and the horn of Helm was loud in the mountains until the darkness came and King Theoden arose and rode through the shadow to the fire and died in splendor even as the sun returning beyond hope gleamed upon Mindoluin in the morning. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, he rode singing in the sun, sword unsheathing, hope he rekindled, and in hope ended, over death, over dread, over doom lifted, out of loss, out of life, into long glory. But Mary stood at the foot of the green mound, 
and he wept. And when the song was ended, he arose and cried, Theoden king, Theoden king, farewell, as a father you were to me for a little while. Farewell. Oh, John's is saying, I'm tearing, I'm, I'm tearing up here. Theoden is my favorite. Theoden, obviously one of my favorites too. And this is, this is just, I mean, breathtaking, just breathtaking. We'll note here the, uh, the Rahiric bard Gleowine or Gleowine, if we uh, like either the Anglo-Saxon, or we like the English, the, the Anglicized Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> All right, um, uh, I, I'm leaning toward Gleowine here. Like uh, we, we, Professor Dawkins is, is pretty consistent with his diacritical marks, so I would expect there to be a little, uh, a little acute above the uh, above the e there if it was uh, Gleowine. So we'll say Gleowine here. Um, the song of Theoden Thengelson that Gleowine his minstrel made, and he made no other song after. This is it. This is the end of his career. What is this song? Well, the slow voices of the writer stirred the hearts even of those who did not know the speech of that uh, the speech of that people. Right? Remember uh, Mary hearing the words and the songs of the Rohirrim and uh, being caught up in them, like recognizing fragments of language, but still being moved by the content, even if he couldn't understand it directly. But the words of the song brought a light to the eyes of the folk of the Mart Mark as they heard again, uh, as they heard again afar the thunder of the hooves of the North, the voice of Errol crying above the battle upon the field of Caliban, right? This is the coming of Errol the Young from the North. We are telling the whole damn history of Rohan. We are telling the whole history of the Rohirrim here. From the coming of Errol to the uh, the, tale of the tale of kings rolled on and the horn of Helm was loud in the mountains, right? Helm's Deep, we're, we're cutting back to that story until the darkness came and King Theoden arose and uh, the darkness upon King Theoden, right? The darkness in Methazeld, I think, the, which is broken by King Theoden arising and rode through the shadow to the fire and died in splendor even as the even as the sun returning beyond hope gleamed upon Mindoluin in the morning and then we get the actual verse I would love this entire song but then we get the actual verse and of course we're echoing in this verse uh, Eomir's verse his spontaneous poetry that he cries out when he is uh in his moment of despair, right? When we see the the black ships of the Corsairs of Umber coming up the Anduin and he believes that that it, it's all done Stern now was Eomir's mood and his mind clear again. He let blow the horns to rally all men to his banner that could come thither, for he thought to make a great shield wall at the last and stand and fight there on foot till all fell and do deeds of song on the fields of Palinor, though no man should be left in the west to remember the last king of the mark. So he rode to a green hillock and there set his banner and the white horse ran rippling in the wind and then we get the verse. Out of doubt, out of dark to the days rising, I came singing in the sun's sword unsheathing to hope's end I rode and to hearts breaking. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. So you see how Gleowine here takes those first two lines and completely recontextualizes them, right? Uh, yes. Out of doubt, out of dark to the days rising, I came singing in the sun's sword unsheathing. This is a song of fury for Eomer, right? I came out of dark and I came out of doubt and I came with my sword and I was ready to throw down. To hope's end I rode and to hearts breaking, now for wrath, now for ruin and a red nightfall. But that is not the legacy of Theoden King. That is not why he fell. Out of doubt, out of dark to the days rising, he rode singing in the sun's sword unsheathing, right? We're echoing those lines once more. But hope he rekindled and in hope ended over death, over dread, over doom lifted out of loss, out of life unto long glory. Theoden came out of the dark. He came out of the doubt to the days rising with the sun. You remember that, that, that gleam of sun on his shield as he rides and the, the grass around him all aflame, the, like, the light coming for the first time now that the, the, the clouds of the, the dawnless day are being torn apart by the wind from the south. Here he rides and he doesn't carry just light, but he carries hope. Hope he rekindled and in hope ended. In that moment, he 
recharged the Eored, the Eoreds that he had riding with him, right? He recharged, uh, recharged, in his charge, he recharged, in his, char in his charge, he restored hope to the men of the Rohirrim, to the men of Gondor. He was a beacon of light in that moment. Hope he rekindled, and in hope ended. His was a valiant death, over death, over dread, over doom lifted, out of loss, out of life, unto long glory. And then we collapse back down again, right? We, we've got this fantastical, we've got the, the, the great kind of uh, paratactical structure of, of Rohiric history in that first paragraph there. Then we get the verse, which is Anglo-Saxon verse. So we're not getting the rhyme and the rhythm in quite the same way, but we're getting that brilliant alliterative structure of, of this verse. And then we come all the way back down. But Mary stood at the foot of the green mound and he wept. And when the song was ended, he arose and cried, Theoden King, Theoden King, farewell. As a father you were to me for a little while, farewell. That's it. That's the goodbye to Theoden King. We just keep on saying goodbye to people here. It's just stunning. I don't think that I mentioned, actually, that uh, Gleowine's name means uh, friend of music, that Gleo means uh, music or harp music in particular, and, and wine means friend, right? We're going to see wine again, actually, in... Um, gosh, is that the... That's the very next slide. Let's do this. Ha-ha, <laughs> look at this. It's like it's all coming together. When the feast was over... <clears throat> excuse me. When the feast was over, those who were to go took leave of King Aomer. Aragorn and his knights and the people of Lorien and Rivendell made ready to ride. But Faramir and Imrahel remained at Edoras, and Arwen Evenstar remained also, and she said farewell to her brethren. None saw her last meeting with Elrond, her father, for they went up into the hills and there spoke long together, and bitter was their parting that should endure beyond the ends of the world. At the last, before the guests set out, Aomer and Eowyn, excuse me, I'll stress that properly. At the last, before the guests set out, Eomer and Eowyn came to Mary, and they said, Farewell now, Mariatic of the Shire and Holdwine of the Mark. Ride to good fortune and ride back soon to our welcome. And Eomer said, Kings of old wound have laden you with gifts that have... Um, excuse me. Um, the problem here is that I have my slides on a smaller screen than usual, so it's more difficult for me to read them, and that's why I think I'm stumbling over them so much. And Eomer said, Kings of old would have laden you with gifts that Ewain could not bear for your deeds upon the fields of Mundberg. And yet you will take naught, you say, but the arms that were given to you? This I suffer, for indeed I have no gift that is worthy. But my sister begs you to receive this small thing as a memorial of Durnhelm and of the horns of the mark at the coming of the morning. Then Eowyn gave to Mary an ancient horn, small but cunningly wrought all of fair silver with a baldric of green, and right set engraven upon it swift horsemen riding in a line that wound about it from the tip to the mouth, and there were set runes of great virtue. This is an heirloom of our house, said Eowyn. It was made by the dwarves and came from the horde of Scotha the Worm. Errol the Young brought it from the north. He that blows it at need shall set fear in the hearts of his enemies and joy in the hearts of his friends, and they shall hear him and come to him. Then Mary took the horn, for it could not be refused, and he kissed Eowyn's hand, and they embraced him, and so they parted for that time. So, another parting here, and note to whom we are saying farewell in this moment, you guys, Faramir, Imrahil, Arwen, all passing out of our narrative. That's it. We are done. That that is a that is a series wrap for Faramir and for Prince Imrahil of Dole Amroth, a favorite of many readers. I feel here in this this journey through the Lord of the Rings and Arwen Evenstar too. None saw her last meeting with Elrond. The ambiguity there, I think, it, uh, the ambiguity there is almost not ambiguous. This is not last in the sense of you know for now. This is not the last before they say farewell. This is their last meeting. This is the last time that Arwen speaks with her father. None saw her last meeting with Elrond, her father, for they went up into the hills and there spoke long together, and bitter was their parting that should endure beyond the ends of the world. This is a final farewell between Elrond and Arwen. 
And at the last before the, uh, at the last before the guests set out, Aomer and Eowyn came to Mary and they said, Farewell now, Mariatic of the Shire, and hold wine of the mark. Hold wine of the mark here, another name for Mary, because God knows he could use a couple of those. Uh, faithful and loyal friend, right? Uh, wine, the same root as, as, uh, as we saw previously. Hold wine of the mark, faithful friend, loyal friend. Ride to good fortune and ride back soon with our welcome. And Aomer wants to give him a gift, indeed, right? But Mary has already turned him down. And yet you will take naught, you say, but the arms that were given to you. This I suffer, this I endure, this I tolerate, this I understand. For indeed I have no gift that is worthy, but my sister begs you to receive this small thing as a memorial of Durnhelm and of the horns of the mark at the coming of the morning. It's just gorgeous. It's just genuinely, genuinely lovely. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Scotha here, too. Um, the, this is an heirloom of our house. It was made by the dwarves and came from the horde of Scotha the Worm. We don't actually know that much about uh, Scotha the Worm. Uh, Scotha is Anglo-Saxon, meaning like... Um, Basically meaning like a bad guy, meaning like a like a rogue or a ruffian, a thief, like a, a murderer, an assassin even. That is what the, the Anglo-Saxon word scotha means. But we don't actually know uh we don't actually know that much about him, unfortunately. Um though obviously he was uh slain and the horn was taken prior to the coming of Errol the Young to uh to Rohan. Yeah. Um let me see here as I scroll back, I'm I'm just uh struggling here to keep up with the chat tonight yes um good good all right i think we're i think we're up here um oh no random comments is having trouble my battery died and now my internet is fighting me i will not yield oh well it's an excuse to listen again later yeah 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 i see it um oh and uh liana is recommending let me see here as i scroll back to find the recommendation itself liana is recommending a piece of poetry. Uh, the albums that Christopher Lee did with the official Tolkien ensemble for the entire Lord of the Rings. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you can find those. Um, I think they're streaming certainly on Google Music, which is my preferred music streaming platform. But I think you can find them elsewhere on the internet. They may even be on YouTube. But yes, it's uh, it's it's gorgeous. Um, oh, very good concept. You pronounce it Shatha, I think. It may well be the case that you would pronounce it Shatha. As I've said before, my uh, Anglo-Saxon pronunciation, not that great. And I tend to slip into, uh, I tend to slip into that uh, Latin at Sindarin pronunciation that we get which uh, where we're, we're uh, using always hard C's nothing but hard C's nothing but hard C's all the way through okay let's uh, keep pushing onward let me see if I can since I now have 10 minutes left in tonight's session let me see if I can okay well we can do one more slide that's perfect we'll do one more slide because you guys it's time to get back to another fan favorite character. Yes, we're saying goodbye to Faramir we're saying goodbye to Imrahil we're saying goodbye to Arwen they are dropping out of the narrative at this point but we do have a moment with uh, with an old friend here for a while the travellers sat where once the old gates of Isengard had stood, and there were now two tall trees like sentinels at the beginning of a green-bordered path that ran toward Orthanc, and they looked in wonder at the work that had been done, but no living thing could they see far or near. But presently they heard a voice calling, Hum, 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 and there came Treebeard striding down the path to greet them with Quickbeam at his side. Welcome to the tree garth of Orthanc, he said. I knew that you were coming, but I was at work up the valley. There is much still to be done, but you have not been idle either away in the south and the east, I hear, and all that I hear is good, very good. Then Treebeard praised all their deeds, of which he seemed to have full knowledge, and at last he stopped and looked long at Gandalf. Well, come now, he said. You have proved mightiest, and all your labors have gone well. Where now would you be going, and why do you come here? To see how your work goes, my friend, said Gandalf, and to thank you for your aid in all that has been achieved. Um, well, 
That is fair enough, said Treebeard, for to be sure, ants have played their part, and not only in dealing with that, that accursed tree slayer that dwelt here, for there was a great inrush of those burarum, those evil-eyed, black-handed, bow-legged, flint-hearted, claw-fingered, foul-bellied, blood-thirsty, moramaite, sinkahonda, well, since you are hasty folk and their full name is as long as years of torment, those vermin of orcs. And they came over the river and down from the north and all round the wood of Lorelin Dorinan, which they could not get into, thanks to the great ones who are here. He bowed to the lord and lady of Lorien. And these same foul creatures were more than surprised to meet us out on the wold, for they had not heard of us before, though that might be said also of better folk. And not many will remember us, for not many escaped us alive, and the river had most of those. But it was well for you, if they had not met us, then the king of the grassland would not have ridden far, and if he had, there would have been no home to return to. We knew it well, said Aragorn, and never shall it be forgotten in Minas Tirith or in Edoras. Never is too long a word, even for me, said Treebeard. Not while your kingdoms last, you mean, but they will have to last long indeed to seem long to the ends. The return of Treebeard, you guys. The return of Treebeard and my last opportunity to say the word Burarum, which I'm just going to use now all the time. I think I'm just going to have to adopt that into my uh, into my regular lexicon because it is just so effective. Here we see uh, it's almost not worth talking about because we talked about it so thoroughly back in the Two Towers, but here we see that great Entish formulation, right? There was such a great inrush of those Burarum, those evil-eyed, black-handed, bow-legged, flint-hearted, claw-fingered, foul-bellied, bloodthirsty, Moramaite Sinkahonda, whom... Uh, uh, this is Quenya. It means black-handed and flint-hearted, right? So he's slipping out of his, uh, slipping out of his Westron speech, his common speech here into, uh, into Quenya. So, so agitated is he, but then you see him regulate himself. Mm, well, since you are a hasty folk and your full name is as long as years of torment, those vermin of orcs. And here we see that they have, of course, been busy protecting, uh, protecting the lands of Rohan from the incursion of the orcs. It's a really great sequence um and aragorn of course <laughs> again right another turn toward the tragic another turn toward the profound another turn toward the the beautifully um the beautifully sad i suppose right uh, kind of uh speaking to that tolkienian sense of of uh, beautiful transcendent sadness and grief he's making the case treebeard is making the case we did our thing you guys have no idea but we really took care of some business up here and it's a good thing that we did or the king of the grassland right your your uh, your theoden king like he wouldn't have got far or i guess eomer in fact actually by that point eomer would not have got far at this point and if he had gone far he wouldn't have had anything to come home to we took care of business here and Aragorn we know it well said Aragorn and never shall it be forgotten in Minas Tirith or in Edoras and even then we just can't let him have this moment we just can't let any idea of permanence stand here the world is changing as Treebeard is going to comment in a moment there is something in the air and in the water and in the earth itself the world is changing never is too long a word even for me said Treebeard not while your kingdoms last you mean but they will have to last long indeed to seem long to ants it's just a different perspective. <laughs> Only to Treebeard could Aragorn seem naive, says Jackie here in the chat. Yes, exactly right. 
it's so beautiful. It's so profound. And you guys, uh, we're going to do one more, in fact, because we can't not. I'm, I'm not going to stop here when we have still greater tragedies to... Uh, to address here as we talk about uh, what has happened to Saruman, like what has happened to Saruman, and, and Treebeard gives us this very carefully orchestrated past tense account of Saruman in Orthanc, but it turns out that Saruman has left, like a week ago he left, and uh, we instructed, uh, Treebeard instructed uh, Saruman to lock up before he left. You may be right, said Gandalf, but the snake still ha had still one tooth left, I think. He had the poison of his voice, and I guess that he persuaded you, even you, Treebeard, knowing the soft spot in your heart. Well, he is gone, and there is no more to be said. But the Tower of Orthanc now goes back to the king to whom it belongs, though maybe he will not need it. That will be seen later, said Aragorn. But I will give to Ants all this valley to do with as they will, so long as they keep a watch upon Orthanc and see that none enter it without my leave. It is locked, said Treebeard. I made Saruman lock it and give me the keys. Quickbeam has them. Quickbeam bound, bowed like a tree bending in the wind, and handed to Aragorn two great black keys of intricate shape, joined by a ring of steel. Now I thank you once more, said Aragorn, and I bid you farewell. May your forest grow again in peace. When this, excuse me, when this valley is filled, there is room and to spare west of the mountains where once you walked long ago. Treebeard's face became sad. Forests may grow, he said. Woods may spread, but not ants. There are no endings. Yet, maybe there is now more hope in your search, said Aragorn. Lands will lie open to you eastward that have long been closed. But Treebeard shook his head and said, It is far to go, and there are too many men there in these days. But I am forgetting my manners. Will you stay here and rest a while? And maybe there are some that would be pleased to pass through Fangorn Forest and so shorten their road home. He looked at Celeborn and Galadriel, but all save Legolas said that they would now take their leave and depart either south or west. Come, Gimli, said Legolas, now by Fangorn's leave I will visit the deep places of the Antwood and see such trees as are nowhere else to be found in Middle-earth. You shall come with me and keep your word, and thus we will journey on together to our own lands in Mirkwood and beyond. To this Gimli agreed, though with no great delight, it seemed. Here then at last comes the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring, said Aragorn. Yet I hope that ere long you will return to my land with the help you promised. We will come, if our lords allow it, said Gimli. Well, farewell, my hobbits. You should come safe to your own homes now, and I will not be kept awake for fear of your peril. We will send word when we may, and some of us may yet meet at times. But I fear that we shall not be gathered together ever again. <laughs> Nicky saying, inner Gimli, yay! trees. Well, yes, though, of course, Gimli is just making good on his pact, right? Because they went into the caves at Helm's Deep. They, they, when we were uh, journeying west from Edoras en route to Isengard, the, uh, Legolas and Gimli made some time to go visit the, the glittering caves. And true enough, true enough, like only Gimli had language to describe them. Uh, uh, Legolas even acknowledges the fact that uh, no, uh, this is the only time that a dwarf has bested an elf when it comes to the language of beauty, right? This is absolutely true. So this is, you know, this is the, the reciprocal arrangement here is that they'll go into Fangorn together. And this is it. This is the departure. Okay, before we get to the departure of, of Legolas and Gimli, before we get to the end of the fellowship here, Antwives. We still don't know where the Antwives are, and there are still no more Antings. The world is changing. Forests may grow, woods may spread, but not Ents. There are no Antings. And Aragorn has hope, yet maybe now there is more hope in your search. Lands will lie open to you eastward that have long been closed. Like, we know that you couldn't cross the river. Like We know that it was bad over there for like a good long while, but those lands are now open again. Those lands are going to be safe again. You can go and you can look and you can maybe find them. 
But Treebeard shook his head and said, It is far to go, and there are too many men there in these days. Too many men. It's the dominion of man. It's the fourth age. The rise of man is now well, the rise. The okay, yeah, not rise. Dominion, though, right? The, the the spreading forth of humanity across the face of Middle Earth, across the face of Arda, is now inevitable, and it is going to make no space. It is going to 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 drive out all that is not humanity. Right? This is true of the elves, of the dwarves, ultimately too, of course, of the hobbits, of the ants. It is the passing of a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Jackie's noting here that Aragorn and Gandalf enter the tower in unfinished tales. I believe that that is correct. Yes. And here we go. End of the fellowship, says uh, Random Comments. This is it. This is the only time in the prose of the Lord of the Rings itself that we use the phrase, the fellowship of the ring. This is the only time that it shows up. No one says the term, the fellowship of the ring, in the actual uh, chapter titles and, and such like, uh, obviously the title of the first volume, uh, the title of the first book of this volume, but nowhere else in the prose is it actually used. We use fellowship and we use the company of the ring, but we never conflate those two terms. Here then at last comes the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring. Yet I hope ere long you will return to my land with the help you promised. We will come if our own lords allow it, said Gimli. Well, farewell, my hobbits. You should come safe to your own homes now, and I shall not be kept awake for fear of your peril. We will send word when we may, and some of us yet, uh, some of us may yet meet at times, but I fear that we shall not all be gathered together ever again. And indeed they're not. Indeed, this is the end of the Fellowship. Um, yeah. Since we're talking about endings, since we talked about Aragorn, since we talked about Arwen, let's talk about Legolas and Gimli. Legolas and Gimli basically go off to their own domains. They hang out for a good long while. They uh, spend some time in the Mirkwood. They spend some time in Lothlorien. They spend some time, uh, obviously, in Fangorn Forest. And then they spend some time at uh, Minas Tirith. They spend some time in Gondor. Uh, Legolas actually lead, leads a community of elves, which sets up shop as he, you know, foresh uh, as he foreshadowed in last week's reading. He leads a community of elves down to Minas Tirith, where they live for a time. But 150 years from now, in the same year that Aragorn dies, the year before Arwen dies, Legolas builds a ship in Ithilien. He builds a grey ship in Ithilien and sets sail down the Anduin and into the sea and travels into the west. But he does not go alone because he takes with him Gimli, son of Glowen, the only dwarf ever to travel into the west, the only dwarf ever to, to, to behold Valinor, I suppose, right? Like, he's the only one who gets to do it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's a story for another time. Legolas endures for another 150 years until the lure of the song is, is too much. And it is, of course, no coincidence at all that it is the year that Aragorn dies that Legolas uh, decides to leave behind Middle-earth forever. Yeah, it's, it's just lovely. Yeah. Good. Uh, the Caves at Helm's Deep too, I think, says Jackie. Yeah, we've already done the, uh, yeah, we, we visited the Caves at Helm's Deep on our way out to, uh, out to Orthanc. But uh, yeah, I mean, they, they just, they just road trip, like road trip buddies, Legolas and Gimli road trip buddies. I mean, that would be a great road trip movie, in fact. I, I would love to see that, yeah. Uh, Nikki asking, why was Gimli given permission? Because of his role in the aid of Middle-earth, so many others were turned away. That is a really great question. That is like a really great, like, what does Manwe think? when Gimli shows up. Like, like if you remember like the, the story of Arendelle, right? We'll have some more opportunity to talk about this when we talk about the somewhere, and even when we talk about the appendices of the Lord of the Rings, actually. But uh, yeah, it is beyond unprecedented for Gimli to show up. Like, it's one thing for Frodo to show up. Minor spoilers for what happens to Frodo. It's one thing for Frodo and Bilbo to show up. But for Gimli to show up? Yeah. Fealty to Galadriel, I think, is, is what it is. It's it's love for Legolas, yes, and that different kind of love for uh, for Galadriel. That is what gets Gimli through the doors, I think. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty great. It's it's really quite beautiful. Um, 
Are we talking to... <laughs> Shane is saying Alistair is giving us the what happened to the part of the 80s, 90s movies where the characters are high-fiving and walking off fade to black. Yeah, no, this is all of the, the little uh, the little captions that come up at the end of the movie, right? Legolas and Gimli palled around Middle-earth for 150 years, then built his ship and sailed into the West. Ha-ha! <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. Uh, we're talking about the Elder Scrolls for some reason here in the chat, which I will try and fight the urge to do because I love the Elder Scrolls games and uh, we'll take pretty much any opportunity to talk about the lore of those games. At some point, we will get the opportunity to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Jackie's saying, I don't think there were any strict restrictions against other races. No, I don't think that there were, but it's about uh, purity, I suppose. Or purity sounds awfully, uh, awfully judgmental of poor Gimli, if nothing else, and, and not entirely right. Um, well, you know what? We'll talk about Valinor. We'll talk about the sailing into the West when we get to, uh, get to the Grey Havens in just a couple of weeks' time. In fact, we made some pretty good progress tonight. I'm, I'm not at all dissatisfied with the amount of progress that we made. We've saved just a little bit of Treebeard for next week. Let me close that slide so that I can skip ahead and show you what we will discuss next time. Okay, I guess we did actually have quite a few slides left to go. So we will cover the rest of this and you know what um this is actually incorrect this is this is just fine I've, i i didn't update my slide this is terrible i do apologize um i was too busy pulling from the text this is what we're going to cover next time we'll definitely cover the rest of chapter six we'll cover chapter seven homeward bound which really is a very short chapter we may even begin chapter eight the scourging of the shire though i hold out no great hope that that will be the case i think what we're going to do is cover uh that that is going to be 10 p.m eastern 9 p.m central next week that is july the 26th i should say the following week, we will cover the Scouring of the Shire and the Grey Havens. Possibly we might get through both. Depends how much we cover. We may have to take a whole extra week to do that. Um, what we may do, in fact, is add in an extra week. So we will do probably the Scourging of the Shire on August 2nd, probably the Grey Havens August 9th, something like that. Then we are going to spend two weeks on the appendices. We're going to spend a whole week on Appendix A, and then we're going to spend a week on the other appendices. I'm just going to cherry pick out of the other appendices because there's no narrative, or, or there are fragments of narrative, but there's a lot of other stuff in there too that is not going to be well suited for this kind of discussion. Then we'll maybe do like a final Q&A for The Lord of the Rings. Then we'll maybe take a skip week. We'll maybe take a little vacation here on there and back again. And then we're going to talk about the movies. We're going to take 12 weeks to go through all six movies. It's going to be pretty fantastic. It's going to be pretty huge. We're going to have the opportunity to talk about The Hobbit again. Um, Random comments saying, don't want, don't want to always be that guy, but can we do the animated films? I don't know the animated films nearly as well as I should. Um, I, I'm not against it. Yes. Are they freely available? Is the, the Rankin-Bass uh, Rankin uh, animated movie freely available? If it is, then I, I, it would seem churlish not to do it, right? It would seem weird not to do it. We might even talk a little about the audiobook adaptations, uh, one of which I've been listening to uh, just recently, the... Uh, the uh, the um the the full cast recording which is which is pretty great so yes all of that is to say that we have lots of more lots more discussions i think that probably means we're going to end up doing four more sessions on the prose of the novel itself than a couple of weeks on the appendices that's pretty much how that's going to work out you guys it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you all this evening i am over time so i'm afraid i just have to wrap it up there but i hope that you all have a fantastic week i hope that you're all keeping cool wherever you are except uh what ria you're in australia i guess so is it do you have to keep warm there now is it terrible there this time of year i have no idea i don't know where in the continent you are i know that there are uh, many differing climates down there but yes i hope you stay warm cool as appropriate right through the course of the next week i hope that you all drink your antish drafts appropriately and uh, in good measure i will talk to you all again very soon until then take care and fly you fools <laughs>